Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. This is episode number 60. Rick Cole here, and each week we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years where we report on all the hockey and sporting news from that time period. This week, we're looking at December 14th to 21st, 1970. We have two sponsors to thank for putting this podcast together each week. Uh, Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive. And if you're looking for any news of the past, that's the place to go. They enable us to access all these great news stories from 50 years ago. And without their support, we couldn't, we couldn't put this on. Our other sponsor, of course, is the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal in Lake Erie. The folks at the Breakwall, uh, put out some of the best craft beers in southern Ontario, and they have some amazing pub food as well. And when we can all get together again, I'd love to meet any of our listeners for a beer and a burger at the break wall. One of the other things we always like to remind you about at this point in time in the program is our Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash hockey50years, and that's a website we have put together where you can donate to our project, uh, in return, you'll get a lot of special content. You'll get early access to each week's free episode, and these Friday episodes always will be free. We also put out some very interesting special content two or three times a month where we take a deeper dive into the issues that were surrounding the hockey world at that time. Uh, things such as the darkness with Harkness in Detroit is something that we're looking very deeply into. We'll be talking about the issues around Maple Leaf Gardens and all the... Uh, drama that went on with that so if you'd like to contribute help us keep the lights on once again patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and we thank you for your support last week's episode was uh, a very uh news news packed uh, time in 1970 some of the stories we talked about well the stanley cup and two other trophies were stolen from the hockey hall of fame in toronto and we had the details on that uh, the maple leafs complained the national hockey league president clarence campbell about a newspaper column being written by former leafs gm and now sabers gm punch Imlac. And uh, Campbell admonished him lack for what he was putting in the column. And Red Wings goalie Roy Edwards suffered a fractured skull, which was probably going to keep him out of the lineup for an extended period of time. And that led to speculation about the Red Wings trading for a proven National Hockey League goaltender. This week, another busy one on the ice. We will have results of some of the more prominent games that took place this week. And in addition, we have some pretty... Uh, uh, they're heavy stories this week, some of them. We have details on a terrible incident that took place in British Columbia where a young National Hockey League player's father was killed by police in a row over which game was being shown on television. There were more developments in the Mike Walton situation in Toronto and that much-awaited Maple Leaf Gardens Board of Directors meeting we talked about a couple weeks ago took place this week and we'll tell you what happened there in moves that would probably determine the fortunes of the Toronto Maple Leaf Hockey Club for decades to come. 
First up this week, we have some of the more interesting game results from the past seven days. We start with a Sunday evening game in Boston between the Bruins and the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, Notable because this game pretty much represented the season that Phil Esposito was having for the Bruins as they cruised to a 6-2 drubbing of the Red Wings at Boston Garden. Uh, Tom Fitzgerald and a couple of other unnamed writers where bylines weren't provided provides us with the information for this report. After this game, Phil Esposito maintained his cautious sense of perspective after an uh, almost routinely spectacular performance uh, as he lifted the Bruins to the 6-2 win over the Red Wings. All Phil accomplished this time was his fourth three-goal hat trick of the 70-71 season and the ninth of his so far illustrious NHL career. And that boosts his total this year to 26 goals in 29 games. Of course, after the game, this led to yet another scene of congestion around Espo's position in the corner near a door in the Bruins dressing room. Since this has become a regular feature of the post-mortems of these games, there was a tendency for one interview to actually apologize for bothering Phil once again. Phil's reply was, I'm tired, but I never get tired of the congratulations. Don't worry, I know there'll be a time when there won't be so many of them. For the moment, though, the 27-year-old with the long arms and legs and the deft touch with the slightly curved hockey stick definitely achieved another peak in his career. Uh, Espy's goals provided half the total that also featured some similarly bright productions, uh, each in its own various manner by Eddie Westfall, Derek Sanderson, and Bobby Orr, who slipped home his 13th and added two assists for a running point total this season of an incredible 45 from the defense position. Now one must remember the Red Wings were not at full strength, lacking probably their two best players, goalie Roy Edwards and uh, the great Gordie Howe, among others. They only got a couple of goals, and they oddly converted those into a 2-1 lead early in that second period. That was the same period, though, in which the Bruins pulled up four against the uh, Red Wings stand-in goalie, a young fellow by the name of Don Smokey McLeod, and uh, they grabbed them off in two rapid clusters. For Phil Esposito, like the rest of the Bruins, there was a special satisfaction in this win following up the previous one nothing uh, thriller the day before in Philadelphia. These two were quite necessary victories because they allowed the Stanley Cup champions to sustain their narrow margin of just two points as the East Division uh, leaders over the New York Rangers, who took out the Los Angeles Kings on the same evening, 4 nothing at Madison Square Garden. Bruins have a few days off after this one, and Esposito acknowledged that, saying it's going to be good to get a little rest again. Phil said the game at Philadelphia was a great one, but the ice there was bad, and the Bruins really had to keep going all the way, laboring with their skating on the soft ice surface. With this game, we all know we've had a real good weekend. Bruins coach Tom Johnson also was gratified, but there was a little bit of a variation in his analysis of the contest. Johnson said, these guys showed me they not only could win the games in which they score six goals, these are good, but they are much better 
when they come right after a close game like that one we had yesterday in Philadelphia with the Flyers. The first of Espo's three goals was the actual winner of the game. It went in uh, at 6.48 of the second period, and that came only 38 seconds after another score that had to give the Bruins a big lift. And that was a breakaway engineered initially by Orr and Dallas Smith on which Derek Sanderson wound up with a well-tagged rising shot that beat McLeod. It was a big one because it was negotiated while Wayne Carlton of the Bruins was serving a two-minute minor. That, by the way, was the 10th shorthanded goal by a Boston Bruins player this season. Of course, that's most in the NHL. Eddie Johnson was in goal for the Bruins in this game, and he had a minimum chance on either of the Detroit goals. The first, by a young fellow by the name of Hank Monteith, was a sharp deflection of a Jerry Hart drive from the point, and the other was Gary Unger uh, had clear sailing in from his own blue line after defenseman of the Bruins Don Ory was partially blocked off the puck by linesman Dave Shuchuk. That allowed Unger to skate in unmolested on uh, Eddie Johnson right from his own blue line and he made no mistake final score again the Bruins six and the Red Wings two second contest we want to look at this week uh, took place on Wednesday as the Blackhawks blasted the Blues by an eight to three score in Chicago the star of this one was veteran center Stan Makita who led the Hawks to victory with a four goal performance and uh, Bob Verde of the Chicago Tribune helped us out with the report on this one. His ailing back still creaks, his weak old Charlie horse still aches, and he admits he played this game with a splitting headache. But Stan Makita still had a very healthy outing at the stadium in Chicago on Wednesday evening. The uncheckable check scored four times three during a five-goal second period, and the Blackhawks rallied to an 8-3 triumph, their 12th straight victory on home ice, which is a Chicago Blackhawks team record. Scorched by all this artillery were the St. Louis Blues, the Blackhawks' nearest rival in the Western Division, but a rival in the sense that they're in the same division and both near the top only. The Blues were outplayed significantly during the first period, yet they led 3-1. But in the final 40 minutes, the Blues were grossly outplayed and left for home with their worst defeat of the season and trailing the Blackhawks in the standings by now a full seven points. Also notable as a result of the loss by the Blues in this game is the fact that they have not yet won a match in Chicago since the Blues were created by the NHL expansion in 1967. Makita's four-goal night prompted this comment after the game, Stan said to Verdi, what the hell, I guess you gotta have a night like this once in a while. The hat trick, plus one, was the 14th in Stan Makita's long career, and it was his uh, second four-goal game. He scored four goals in a Chicago Stadium game against the Pittsburgh Penguins three seasons ago in that first year of NHL expansion. Makita said that he'd been hoping to break loose to kind of get out of a slump he's been in, having only five goals this season up until last night. Stan said, I haven't been worried about not scoring because the rest of the line is going well. Dennis and Cliff have been going 
doing great, and if I can help him score, then that's just fine. Stosh, as he's affectionately known to his teammates, said that he's been coming around gradually, but he's been hampered this season by this perpetual back ailment that's bothered him since uh, training camp. Stan said, my game is the puck possession type of contest. I've been fumbling it a lot and losing that split second. I haven't really altered my style, but I've made a couple of minor adjustments to my play and it's starting to help now. Now, one change that Stan has made this year, and you guys who know a lot about the game will understand this, Stan changed the stick lie or the angle at which an upright player grasps his stick when the blade rests flat on the ice. Stan is now using a higher lie on his stick, which means the angle of the stick, and you can see how a hockey stick has an angle, is now closer to 90 degrees. And Stan says that uh, that allows him to bring the puck in a, a bit closer to his feet. Stan said, this way I can cradle it more and puck handle better, but that's not really why I'm scoring more. I'm getting some better shots and the opportunities are just opening up a bit more. The Hawks fired 17 shots at Ernie Wakeley in that first period, but uh, Ernie was hot early, and they just couldn't seem to get something by him. And Hawks coach Billy Ray said it really looked like it was going to be just one of those nights. Hawks goalie Tony Esposito admitted, said he, he wasn't right during the early going, and the Hawks' frustration reached a peak when referee Lloyd Gilmore nullified an apparent goal by Cliff Coral. Cliff had batted in a Dennis Hull rebound, only to have Gilmore rule that the whistle had blown when Wakeley temporarily, that's temporarily, made a glove save. Hawks started pouring goals in in the second period, and, uh, seemed to almost score at will. Uh, Coach Al Arbor was juggling his lines, trying to shut the Hawks down. He used 11 different forward combinations, but he couldn't cool the Hawks off. One of the other notes of this game, beside Makita's four goals, Cliff Coral entered the Hawks' record books on netting four assists in the second period alone, and that's a mark shared by eight other players. But there's a man, Coral said when he was asked about appointing to Makita. There's the man who's starting to roll and getting our team to roll. Makita just looked over at Coral, kind of grimaced and said, I've got a headache. Our third uh, game this week we're looking at was on Saturday night where the Buffalo Sabres visited the Maple Leafs in Toronto. You'll remember earlier in the season, the Sabres waltzed in the Maple Leaf Gardens and absolutely decimated the Leafs by a 7-2 to score. Uh, they were up for that game because it was Punch Imlac's first game uh, in a return to Maple Leaf Gardens. Things wouldn't go quite so well for the Sabres tonight. Although it was a close game, they still dropped a 2-0 decision to the Leafs. And uh, for our report this time, we do it from a Buffalo perspective. Uh, thanks to uh, reports... Uh, uh, especially the one by Charlie Barton from the Buffalo Courier Express, one of the best hockey writers around at that time. He covered the Buffalo Bisons of the American Hockey League in big league fashion for many years, and it was good to see Charlie getting a chance to finally be on a regular NHL beat with the new Buffalo Sabres. Barton began his report by saying that superior goaltending usually makes winners of most hockey clubs 
But that is not the case with the Buffalo Sabres. The Sabres dropped the 2-0 game to the the Leafs Saturday night as uh, yet another brilliant effort by Buffalo goalie Joe Daly. He of no mask was wasted by the Sabres. The Maple Leafs outshot Buffalo by a 40-24 margin, but because of Daly's goaltending, they were in this game every step of the way. Uh, he was outstanding between the pipes, and it's amazing how Joe plays as well as he does. Toronto captain Dave Keon and Paul Henderson provided the only goals that the Leafs needed, and they both came in the third period. Earlier, the Sabres more than held their own against the Leafs. Jacques Plante, the venerable Toronto netminder, turned aside a series of hot drives across the first two periods of the game, and a Buffalo bounce here and there might have turned this game around, but Plante had the bounces on his uh, side this week, and he even started the play for uh, Keon's goal when he fed the puck to Rick Lee. It's a long shot. Plante came out to stop it. Not to back to Monaghan. Monaghan puts it right in front of his own net, and Lee brings it back with Monaghan to center. A pass for Monaghan, Monaghan cutting right in front! That goal didn't deflate the Sabres, however. They didn't give up at all, and they came right back, and actually Plant made a big save. He got an elbow on Steve Atkinson's uh, drive from just 10 foot on in front of the net. But Joe Daly then had to come up with a couple of saves, brilliant stops on Jim Harrison and Jim McKenney from close range. But seconds later, Daly again saved the day when he turned back two hard shots uh, from within five feet by both Norm Ullman and Paul Henderson, but that led up to Henderson's goal with Ullman back-checking with determination, gaining possession at center ice. Hamilton comes to center to the lead line, but there's Ullman. Henderson breaks away. Henderson takes down the ice over the line. Durellis going right in on goal to Henderson. Now you will see the much prettier than that, but a 2-1 break again. Paul Henderson over to Ron Ellison. Ellis held it here as the defenseman went down on it. Tried to steer it, shooting it to Paul Henderson on the open side. Joe Daly having no chance whatsoever on that goal. So that gave the Leafs a, a 2 nothing lead, and that's all they would need to win this game. Uh, the Leafs drew five of the eight minor penalties assessed by referee Bruce Hood, but none of those infractions figured in any of the scoring. The The real story of the game was the goalkeeping. Uh, Plant made good saves on Reggie Fleming and uh, many others. Dick Duff had a great chance for the Sabres all alone on Plant, but Plant made a big save on him. Duff, by the way, has been a really good contributor to the Sabres after being traded from the Los Angeles Kings along with Eddie Shack a little while ago. And by the way, Mike McMahon went to the Kings as a player to be named later in that deal. Uh, Daly also was good for the Sabres. He made stops on Ron Ellis and Keon missed uh, an open net as well during the game. Uh, Cliff Schmatz was another one that played well for the Sabres in, in a losing cause, but that just wasn't enough. Uh, the Sabres could not ram a goal in. They even pulled Daly with about a minute and 15 seconds left and a Toronto shot entered the net but it was ruled that the play was offside to make that final score two to nothing for Toronto 
Now, the first big story we want to uh, cover this week, it's a serious story. It's a tough one to talk about, but we want to give you all the uh, all the news that came from this period of time. And, and this one was a sad story, but we want to give you all the details. In the years since this happened, we've heard a lot of different versions. There were some uh, good. There was some good reporting that took place at this time. Uh, this is a tragic incident that occur- occurred on the uh, first Saturday evening of this week. Uh, we didn't learn about it until Sunday, and uh, it was an incident in Prince George, British Columbia, where the father of Maple Leafs rookie winger Brian Spencer lost his life during a gun battle with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and a couple other news outlets uh, have given us a pretty good report, and we'll give that to you now. The father of uh, Toronto Maple Leaf left-winger Brian Spencer was shot to death Saturday night in Prince George, B.C., after he forced a local television station off the air at gunpoint for not showing his son's game when he was playing for the Maple Leafs in Toronto. The Prince George CBC affiliate station CKPG did not carry the Toronto-Chicago game. Instead, like other British Columbia stations, it featured the game between the Vancouver Canucks and the California Golden Seals. Brian Spencer's father, uh, Roy Edward Spencer, who is 59, he's a gravel pit operator, phoned the station from his home in Fort St. James, which is a small community about 85 miles from Prince George. In his telephone call, Mr. Spencer demanded that the station drop the West Coast game and show the game in which his son was playing, and of course, the television station refused. So Roy Spencer then drove the 85 miles to Prince George, which is a city of about 70,200 miles north of Vancouver, to back up his argument. Upon his arrival at the Prince George television station, he forced his way into the building at gunpoint and compelled the staff to shut everything down and go off the air. As he was leaving the station, he was met by three Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers, and after he refused to give up, shooting broke out. One officer was hit by a shot from Mr. Spencer in the leg. Spencer was hit twice in the chest and once in the face by police bullets. He was pronounced dead on arrival at a local hospital. Brian Spencer, who is a rookie with the Leafs, had said before the game with Chicago that he regretted that it wasn't being televised nationally so that his dad would be able to see him. And he said, Dad's pretty sick right now, and I think it would have given him a big lift. The shootout in Prince George began shortly after 7.30 p.m. That's about 10.30 p.m. Toronto time. CKPG newsman Tom Harfell said Roy Spencer approached him in the station's parking lot and told him he had phoned in the afternoon to complain about the hockey telecast. Uh, Harfell said uh, that Spencer told him, I don't like CBC's hockey games. Why don't you broadcast the Toronto game? Hartle told Spencer they had nothing to do with the hockey telecast, and then he walked to the front door of the station. At this point, Spencer pulled out a pistol, a 9mm Magnum FN pistol made in Belgium, and pushed it against Hartle's back. 
uh, Hartle said he had the hammer pulled back and he said he was going to use it. Hartle said he tried to block the door to the station. Then the newsman said Spencer told him there's going to be a revolution all over the country because of the CBC and he forced him into the lobby of the building. He eventually made his way into the office of program director Don Prentice and told him to get the station off the air. Prentice said that Spencer was cold, stone, sober, but he was shaking like a leaf. Newsman John Ray, also present at the time, said that when Spencer first came into the newsroom, he steamed, seemed very steady, very steady, but he didn't seem to be, quote, altogether, but he still had pretty good control of himself. Later, uh, Ray said, Spencer was shaky and his speech was jerky. He seemed to be mentally upset, very disturbed. Uh, Spencer apparently lined up all the employees against the wall and told them, I don't want to kill anybody. I've killed before. I killed many times in the commandos. Turn the TV off. Prentice said he shouted to the broadcasting operator to take the station off the air and the man obeyed. The station went off the air at 7.40 p.m. Another station employee, meanwhile, called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. After he was convinced that the station was off the air, Spencer ran out of the front of the building and a group of RCMP officers were waiting outside the front door. One of them, Corporal Roger Post removed his gun and holster in an attempt to talk to Spencer. Prentice said Post called Spencer and said, hold it right there. At that point, Mr. Spencer opened fire. One bullet hit Post's empty holster. Another one hit Constable Dave Podruchny in the foot. Post and Constable Steve Lazinski then opened fire on Spencer. They fired four shots. Three of them hit him. He was rushed to hospital but was pronounced dead on arrival. Brian Spencer received the news of his father's death early on Sunday morning when his mother phoned him from British Columbia. Despite the uh, terrible news, Brian suited up and played for the Maple Leafs that night in the return match against the Sabres. Now here's how that came about. As soon as he heard that Brian's father had been killed, Toronto General Manager Jim Gregory asked him if he wanted to be flown to BC immediately. Brian said, my father wanted me to be a hockey player more than he wanted anything else in the world. I think he would want me to play and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Still with the May Police, we have a report on that board of directors meeting that was held Tuesday of this week. The meeting was marked by the departure of a majority of the directors on the board and the reinstatement on an official basis of both Stafford Smythe as president and Harold Ballard as vice president of the organization. However, these moves were of great concern to Toronto lawyer Arthur Patillo, who made this statement as he questioned the outgoing directors as to why they were leaving the board. 
Patillo attempted to ask the outgoing directors if they were leaving because they lacked confidence in Stafford Smythe and Harold Ballard. Patillo told reporters after the meeting that he was so dismayed by the gardens management that he was going to probably try and seek a court order appointing a liquidator to sell the company's assets. Patillo said, I haven't made my mind up about seeking a wind-up of the company. I want to see the financial records. Patillo said it is correct to assume that since the management can't be unseated by the shareholders, he is considering asking the courts to do the job instead. Smythe and Ballard hold a controlling interest in the company and, of course, now cannot be removed. Patillo went on to say uh, that it's an extraordinary thing that when a company has been operated almost from the beginning as a community enterprise, leaders in the business community are not allowing their names to stand with this company. Patillo is the immediate past president of the Canadian Bar Association, so this guy is no fly-by-night operator. He's been around and he's quite experienced. He stressed that he was acting on his own as a hockey fan for most of his 60 years and the owner of 100 shares in Maple Leaf Gardens. Many of his questions concerned Smythe and Ballard, of course, who were fired as president and vice president on a split vote of the board of directors in June of 1969. Smythe and Ballard, who right now face court action for alleged income tax evasion, were re-elected as directors at yesterday's meeting, Tuesday's meeting, I meant to say. Uh, and the uh, meeting also did another very... Uh, curious step they approved a reduction on the number of directors from 20 to just nine and you can bet all nine are allies of Mr. Smythe and Ballard. Uh, in case you're wondering these two control 450,000 of the garden shares uh, and the number of shares in total are 735,000. Now, as you can well imagine, there's a lot more to this story, which provides valuable insight into what just might be happening behind the scenes at Maple Leaf Gardens. And this would probably give you some clues as to how the fortunes of the Maple Leafs will turn out in the coming decades. Uh, we're going to do a special edition of our podcast uh, sometime in the near future for our Patreon subscribers where we'll take a deep dive into actually what was going on here along with those charges that uh, they were facing, Ballard and Smythe, uh, for the income, the income uh, tax evasion. Uh, subscribe to our Patreon account and at some point you're going to get a very, very detailed look at how the Maple Leafs fortunes, as they went on years later, uh, actually probably started to decline significantly on this day when Ballard and Smythe were confirmed as controlling the Maple Leafs. One other Maple Leaf note, Mike Walton remains in limbo, suspended by the Maple Leafs as this week began, uh, but the suspension was appealed by his lawyer, good old Alan Eagleson. Trade offers began to trickle in for Mike, but the Leafs weren't biting. None of them were worthy of what the Leafs thought uh, they should consider for, for uh, 
Walton. King Clancy put it best as far as the Leafs, uh, the Leafs' attitude was when he said, we're not going to trade a battleship for a rowboat. Interesting goal scored this week. Uh, uh, Wayne Hillman was the guy who scored it. It was a game in which the Blues and the Flyers tied 2-2 and Hillman scored the tying goal. Now here's what's really interesting about it. Wayne Hillman is a left-handed shooting defenseman and he is not what anyone would consider an offensive whiz. Wayne is a good, solid NHL defenseman, but uh, he's known more for his defensive work than for his offense. Well, he scored the tying goal in this game, and he did it with a move that one might expect from Gordie Howe and not from Wayne Hillman. When Wayne got in close on the Philadelphia goal, instead of shooting left, he suddenly switched to the right-hand side and let a weak shot go. The weak shot seemed to fool goalie uh, Doug Favell and it skittered into the net and that gave the Flyers the 2-2 tie with the St. Louis Blues on a Gordie Howe move by none other than Wayne Hillman. The sale of the Pittsburgh Penguins was supposed to take place this week. Uh, Tuesday was uh, the day an announcement was supposed to be made, but both sides said they were going to extend that deadline until Friday uh, because a, a decision was not able to be made. And all of a sudden now, it looks like this savior of the Pen Penguins franchise might just be getting cold feet. It looks like yet another franchise fiasco is about to unfold in the executive offices of the National Hockey League and these guys just can't seem to get it right with a lot of these franchises that were probably given to owners with dubious credentials. Some on ice news for the Toronto Maple Leafs this time. They have two young defensemen, Jim Dory and Mike Pellick, and they are very responsible for the Leafs' recent turnaround. Uh, they've won four games in a row at this point. This began, not uh, by coincidence, shortly after the Leafs acquired veteran defenseman Bob Bond in a trade with the St. Louis Blues. Here's what Leafs coach John McClellan said about the play of his two young defensemen. John said, I'd have to say Dory's last three games are the best he has played since I took over the team. McClellan said that I had him at Tulsa before he moved to the NHL, and he was the big reason we beat Oklahoma, which was, of course, the Bruins farm team for the Central League title in 1967-68. Uh, McClellan said that Dory actually owned that series and took on every Oklahoma player and made it stick. McClellan went on to say that if Dory continues to play it physically tough, he'll, he'll do uh, just the same in the league. He will dominate. He also said that Mike Pellick has been really playing well as well. He's got great mobility and really good spirit. And uh, when he moved into the regular defense rotation, he steadied away and he's been a solid National Hockey League defenseman ever since. And who's responsible for this turnaround? None other than Bob Bond. McClellan said that when Bond was acquired by the team, Everyone improved. Uh, 
Dorian Pellick especially, but it seemed the team settled down. It's mostly a young team, and defensively, Bond was the glue that stuck it all together. Pellick had probably the best uh, comment of the whole uh, affair with Bond when he says, I'm not a holler guy, and I need someone like the boomer around to keep me on my toes. He'll get on me if I don't jump for the puck or take a man in the corners, and that's just what I needed. You'll remember last week we told you about the Stanley Cup and other trophies being stolen from the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Well, this week, National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell uh, said that he's acknowledged an offer by a New Brunswick cabinet minister to replace the Stanley Cup. Uh, Tourism Minister J.V. Van Horn made the offer on behalf of the sports-minded people of New Brunswick and a telegram to Campbell. Campbell said that he replied to the telegram and thanked him and that he told him that uh, the NHL was currently contemplating the recovery of the trophies rather than replacing them. Uh, Campbell said, I did tell Mr. Van Horn we will keep his kind offer in mind. News from Alberta, the Western Hockey League has conditionally accepted a Vancouver Canucks farm team operating out of the city of Calgary. The main condition imposed by the league is that the National Hockey League Canucks and the Calgary Stampede Board make a quick rental deal for the Stampede Corral. The WHL officials emphasized to the Canucks general manager Bud Poyle and assistant Babe Pratt in meetings in Seattle this week and uh, that a deal must be made soon so schedules can be prepared for next season. Poyle said, We've got a a WHL franchise, but we still haven't got a deal with Calgary's arena management. It boils down to whether Calgary wants us or not. We would hope that Calgary would approve a deal with the Canucks, but I'm sure they don't want to give away the rental of their very fine building for absolutely nothing. Here's a story out of Moscow. Soviet hockey star Vladimir Polupinov and international teammate Valery Vasiliev were cut from the national team this week for breaking discipline during an international tournament in Moscow, which was only last week. The Committee for Physical Culture and Sport also announced that the two players had been stripped of their top sporting honors in the country, and the committee did not say for how long the two players would be suspended or would give any date when they might be reinstated. Well, this year, the Canadians have not played all that well. They've been good. Well, they've been better than a lot of the competition, but not the Montreal Canadiens of old. They've changed their coach. There's a little bit of disarray, and it doesn't look like they're going to be the class of the NHL, but to one guy, they do, and that is the uh, North Stars general manager, Ren Blair. Ren said, uh, I said before the season started that Montreal was going to have one of the great teams. They had a lot of kids just ready to make it. Blair said Peter Mahovlich has played great hockey for the Habs and getting John Ferguson and Ralph Backstrom back after they both had retired has given the Habs a big mental lift. Blair says Montreal has two of the best right wingers in the game right now in Ivan Cornway and Mickey Redmond. And then they got Claude LaRose from Minnesota to uh, 
build up the right side even more. Blair went on to remark that uh, Montreal has added a lot of youth to its defense in Guy Lapointe and Pierre Bouchard, and both of them are playing great hockey for the Habs. Uh, Blair says they've got a great kid playing in Montreal Farm Club, sure to be up with the big league right now. His name is Chuck Lefley, and he's a huge centerman. Blair says if the Canadians keep improving, they'll beat Boston out of first place in the Eastern Division and probably take the Stanley Cup. A little bit of news out of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series. Uh, new this year, Hamilton Red Wings owner Nick Durbano has fired his third Red Wings coach since this summer. This week, he let go a fellow by the name of Pat Flannery, a good Irish boy who's out of Toronto, but he sounds like he could be from Hamilton. Uh, he fired Flannery for undisclosed reasons, and before the the week ended, we learned that Durbano has offered the Hamilton Red Wings coaching job to former Toronto Maple Leaf center Billy Harris. Uh, Harris had not accepted the offer as the end of the week, but it's known that Billy wants to get into coaching, and we think in the back of his mind, Billy would love to coach the Maple Leafs sometime in the future, and this would be a good start. We like to talk about Gump Worsley from time to time as well, a popular figure in the uh, hockey world. Well, in case you were wondering, Gump now, you know, is now playing with the Minnesota North Stars, and he says that he's very, very happy in Minnesota. And two of the reasons, aside from the great money that the North Stars are paying him, is that he's finally getting over his fear of flying, and his family loves Minnesota. Gump says that with the crazy schedule we have, you have to get used to flying or you just won't function. The money that I'm making makes it easier for me to fly. Gump also says my wife is crazy about Minnesota and the kids just love it here. Uh, Gump's son, uh, his second son, Dean, has a chance to play more hockey in Minnesota than he did back in Belle Isle in Montreal. Gump said, my house is only six minutes away from the rink and it's costing me absolutely nothing to have the boy play in Minnesota. Apparently, the North Stars are picking up the tab for all of uh, Gump's son Dean's hockey expenses and Dean is most welcome on this Minnesota hockey team. So Gump Worsley having a great time in Minnesota and if you watch him in goal for the North Stars he looks like he's having a great time. Who knows maybe Gump would even don a mask to extend his career a little longer. <laughs> nah I don't think that's going to happen. So that's our show this week and what did we learn from this uh, December week in the National Hockey League? Well, we got details on the terrible story from BC where a young NHL player's father was killed in a shootout with police in a row over televised hockey. We had an update on the Mike Walton situation in Toronto. Mike is still off, but trade offers are coming in. And the much-awaited Maple Leaf Gardens Board of Directors meeting took place. And Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe were back in control officially. And this will determine the fate of the Toronto Maple Leaf franchise for years to come. 
Next week, we'll have the following stories for you. Both Sid Abel and Ned Harkness will have called this year's edition of the Detroit Red Wings the worst Red Wing team ever. Are Sid and Ned finally on the same page? We'll try and answer that question. Uh, We get more news on the future of the Western Hockey League franchise in Calgary, and we finally get a decision on the sale of the Pittsburgh Penguins to Metro Media, and that announcement will be made next week, and we will have it for you. And, of course, we'll have all the game results and news and notes from around hockey next week as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank Andy enough for all his hard work on this. Andy's now in the business of uh, producing podcasts professionally. And if you're thinking of starting one, get hold of me and I'll hook you up with Andy. Uh, He's one of the best in the business. He's a true media professional. Very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction and exit music. Ever get a chance to see them perform live when things return to normal? They put on a great show. Other sound effects and musical pieces in the podcast are produced by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and, of course, through your favorite podcast app. We have a Facebook page 50 years ago in hockey and a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. It's a great 1970-71 season. A lot of things happening that shape the future of the NHL as well. We hope you'll stick with us for the entire season. And on that note... We will see you next time. When the ice breaks.